Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. My guest, Larry Korn, has dedicated his life to teaching natural farming, which he learned from his mentor, the late, great Masanobu Fukuoka, author of One Straw Revolution. Natural farming isn't just about growing food. It's a philosophy about healing the rift between humans and nature. Larry likens it to indigenous farming, having relationship and humility instead of technique and intellect. The reward is abundant food and an authentic life. Larry Korn translated One Straw Revolution and Fukuoka's other books into English. He also traveled with Fukuoka-san in the U.S., and his own book, One Straw Revolutionary, shares what he learned living on Fukuoka's farm in Japan and working with him. We talk about why Fukuoka, who trained as a plant scientist, railed against science. How this path differs from permaculture, which Larry also studied with its co-founder, Bill Mollison. How the land itself told Larry he was supposed to do this work. And how the goal of natural farming is natural people. We ended our rich conversation once the neighbor cranked up the lawnmower. You'll just hear a few seconds of a weed whacker at the end, but it's worth it. I was grew up in... Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and had, uh, let's say, not that much contact with the natural world. Uh, we did go camping in national parks, and and that was amazing. But for the most part, I just lived in the city, and uh, was especially interested in uh, Asian studies and uh, Asian culture. When I went to College, I went up to Berkeley and studied uh, history, specializing in Chinese history. And when I graduated, I just decided to go to Asia and see what it was like. There were quite a few world travelers, the kind of the um, hippie travelers. Oh, okay. There were a lot of them. Yeah. Mostly, they'd start in Europe and then go through the Middle East into India and maybe Nepal, Southeast Asia, and then they would end up in Japan. And I went, I started out in Japan. I took a passenger ship. And I met some people on the ship, especially this one lovely Asian woman named Kazuko, and and we became close. And I hadn't intended particularly to stay in Japan for more than a few weeks, Uh, since I didn't have a plan, I didn't have an itinerary. I said, hey, this is interesting. And one thing led to another. I met a community of people in Kyoto who were about half uh, Japanese and half Foreigners, but these were the foreigners had been in Japan for quite a while mm-hmm. with, with the foreigners in Japan. You know, either when you, you come to Japan, you either feel immediate attraction and love it and stay or can't stand it to the the um, uh, the culture is too restrictive. Everything is tiny. There's so many people. Uh, and so those people leave. So this was a lot of people, they were all studying some form of Japanese art, you know, shakuhachi, the flute, or uh, pottery, or uh, no one friend was carving no masks and things like that. And it turned out that what happened with me was the thing that I studied was agriculture. I've, I've met some of these, the, the Japanese people in this group were they call themselves Buzoku, which is tribe. They were people that had somehow fallen outside of Japanese, the mainstream of Japanese society. This is a back to the land people. This is 1971. And they had communes. It was just like the back counterpart to the back to the land people in Colorado, Arizona, Virginia, all over the United States at that time. But far fewer. There were far fewer of them and in they were Japan. Japanese, Japanese mm-hmm. and they had communes scattered here and there mm-hmm. around the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I met them, and they invited me to come 
and stay at those communes. And they gave me phone numbers and places uh, where I could stay along the way with their people. And that's what I did for about uh, almost two years. Once I got out to the countryside, I just loved it. And these were communes. That it's a, there was uh, these people called themselves the future primitives. They lived in beautiful but very remote places and built their houses out of natural building. And they had do their did their own gardening and farming. And I was attracted to the gardening. And then I just fell in love with plants and soil. And actually, that changed my life. Until then, the natural world was like wallpaper. And what was it, you know, you say you fell in love with plants and soil, but what was it about them that did it for oh, you? Oh, you know, I have no idea. It's mm-hmm. just it was something that was in me, and when I, it was just such an, an attraction. And it's partly, I think, the contrast between growing up in our culture and in Los Angeles in particular, and the contrast to being on a, an island out near Okinawa with only 40 people on it and a volcano and, you know, look and seeing dolphins and turtles, sea turtles and things like that. Um, But it was actually the soil that spoke to me, literally. I mean, one night I went out into the fields and there was the moonlight and the bamboo and the breeze and then, and the soil literally spoke to me. At least it felt that way to me. And said what? Oh, welcome. Where have you been? You know, um, and uh, it was a great feeling. It was a really great feeling. And most of the time I was uh, working in the sweet potato fields. This was way in southern Japan, working in sweet potato fields and clearing fields out of bamboo, digging bamboo roots day after day after day. And the clouds and the blue sky and the volcanic soil. Uh, it was a revelation. And everything I've done in my life since then has involved, involved plants and soil. So after I left Japan, I went back to Berkeley and studied soil science and plant nutrition. Just as I was finishing, my friends from Kyoto wrote a letter and said, you know, we've left Kyoto. We're living on a farm in this beautiful valley and why don't you come and join us? And I, so I did. Went back to Japan. And on that trip is when I met uh, Fukuoka-san, just because I had heard about him. And, but nobody I knew had been to his farm before. This is a fellow who um, has a, a very unusual way of farming that uh, is a demonstration of a spiritual revelation that he had when he was 25 years old. Tell us about that revelation. Well, he was a he grew up in a village in in southern Japan, and had a chance because his father was the head man of the village and was the largest landholder. He was able to go to college and he studied plant pathology, agriculture, specializing in plant pathology, and then uh, he got a job. His first job was in the customs department inspecting plants that were coming in and going out of the country. And while he was there, he had a near-death experience from pneumonia, and it started him thinking about things that were not just every day, but larger. And one morning, he had an insight where he said that he saw the true face of nature revealed, and that it was perfect, that the universe was perfect, and nature was perfect, just as it was ideal, and every this is completely interrelated, and every every aspect of it is is performing its best service. And and when people think that they can improve on nature, to you know mainly for human benefit, then it can't. The only possible outcome is that there's going to be side effects. It's not going to be better. It's it can't be. It's going to be worse. And then we try to solve the side effect and create another one and another, and each one gets worse. And so he tried to explain that idea to his coworkers and nobody could understand that because science was in the thirties and and people were thinking that science was gonna create this wonderful world with total abundance and leisure and 
you know, we can see they didn't, it wasn't as obvious then mm -hmm. as it is now looking back that that's not at all what happened. Yeah. So what he decided to do, since people couldn't understand, he decided to go back to his family farm and create a, 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 a demonstration of a practical, physical representation of this th I, revelation that he had. And he was going to do it by applying these ideas to agriculture. And were there any, were there ideas of other people that he was working with as well? Or he was basically taking this from his own Completely his own. Mm -hmm. Because there was nobody that had an insight like that. Mm -hmm. So when I met him, he had been doing that for about 25 or 30 years and he had developed this unique system mainly by trying things and he wanted to net, let nature take the lead and he just asked questions he didn't impose his will he was trying to get out of the way and let nature's full force and personality come through and what people were doing by exerting their will on nature was hobbling nature, and so it can't be itself or provide the abundance that it's that it. Nature seems to want to create the conditions for life, and if we only would let it, if we would allow, nature wants to work with us and wants to. You know, we're all we're an integral part, but we just won't allow that to happen. So what Fukuoka son was. You know, the first thing he did when he went back is he saw that people had really run the place down at his farm mm -hmm. and pr pretty much everywhere that we've been. But specifically at his farm, the topsoil was eroded. There was almost no diversity. The trees had been pruned. And so he went about um, um, rehabilitating. The first thing he had to do was re rehabilitate the land um, so that nature could, would be able to provide the abundance. And then he, he, he was hoping to set this up so nature would be able to express itself fully. And the more he stepped back, then the more nature provided. And so he was dealing with a farm. He came to a farm where they had mandarin oranges, right? Mandarin orange mm -hmm. groves. And then they also grew rice and winter greens, right? So that's, that's right. It was the orchard was about 12 acres. And the rice field was just an acre and a half. This is this huge farm for, for Japan. Is it? Yeah, in that area, it was one of the largest. Mm -hmm. um, and he grew rice over the summer and barley over the winter in the same field. So he did double crop, which was common in Japan in traditional times, and it's nobody does it anymore. So he he the first thing he wanted to rehabilitate so that nature could see in everything about natural farming is counterintuitive. So he instead of trying this and trying that, to, uh, what his idea was: how about not doing this and not doing that? So he looked at agriculture. Uh, and what are we doing in agriculture? He looked at plowing, basic things, plowing, uh, pruning, uh, flooding the rice fields, making compost. And he decided eventually when he looked at them that none of them were necessary. And they were, I mean, you don't see nature. Nature makes compost, but in a completely different way. And uh, uh, doesn't plow except when a tree falls over or a flood or something like that. Mm -hmm. The soil is pretty much not exposed mm -hmm. like we do it. And so he's, well, it's, so let's not do that, not do that. He had no idea where he was going, where this would lead, which is another, you know, later maybe we'll talk about permaculture with the design, which yeah. is the essence of permaculture. Yeah. And his idea is, no, a design is a human-created thing and and if you but how about letting nature design be the designer so that's what he did and he he um he he knew he needed a a, a nitrogen fixing ground cover so he tossed out the seeds of about 20 different kinds and then he had no investment in the outcome he just want he's asking nature what would you like here and white clover and vetch were clearly 
what he needed, so he went that way. I'm he, such a fan of white clover. Yeah. <laughs> I really am. That's I what I have. And, and part of it is from, from reading your work and his work that, you know, you see some area that's kind of bare or it's, it's, it's compacted or something. White clover. You know, it's interesting. He came to the United States mm -hmm. after the One Straw Revolution came out. He started getting invited to travel around the world, and his first stop was here on the, well, United States, the West Coast, and he also went to New York and New England. Mm -hmm. So when he came up to the Puget Sound area, where 60, 70 inches of rain, and, well, and he suggested using permanently covering the fields with white clover and then grow the vegetables within the ground cover, People freaked out because white clover is so strong there hmm. that it's, they, oh, it gets into the garden and it strangles the vegetables. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So that was interesting. But there are ways, of course, that you can deal with it. Now, uh -huh. I was living in the Northwest and, you know, many people have worked out how to do that. Um, but at the time, they just like, ugh. Huh, that's weird. Yeah. He liked plants that were very aggressive because they're hard workers is the way he called it so the way he did is improve the soil was that he mixed the seeds of all kinds of different plants like um, uh, deep-rooted ones like uh, burdock and dandelion and docks and and then uh, white clover legumes and buckwheat and grains and flowers and uh, medicinal plants mugwort comfrey he mixed the seeds of all of those, and he just tossed them out there. Oh, and mustard, and radish, and daikon. Oh, he loved daikon for improving the soil deep down. Yeah, yeah. And so all of these plants can be very aggressive, and he liked that. So what he did, and somebody, I remember when somebody asked him that question, well, aren't you worried that these are things are going to get out of control? He says, no, what all I do is I take them and I put them all out there together and say, you work it out. <laughs> and it changes and it goes and when the soil changes, the composition changes, but uh, he liked that. So the way he rebuilt the soil was eventually, first he started with the deep-rooted plants to open up channels, like right. the daikon was right. the main one, and, and others. And then he introduced this and that, and then finally just, finally he got a ground cover of all these different plants that was growing up four or five feet tall, and their roots, and it's such a diversity, and the roots are growing down into the soil, and they're making channels for air and water, and then they're dying, and then other roots are coming down and there's a diversity. Matters. So yeah. he's making compost right in the ground is what it is. And he doesn't have to go through the trouble of gathering the stuff up and mixing it together and then mm -hmm. carrying it out. And on a large scale, I mean, mm -hmm. compost is a real burden. It's a lot of work. And that's another thing that he referred to his kind of farming as, uh, well, he calls it do-nothing farming. It doesn't mean that he's not working really, you know, he's a farmer, he's got 12 acre orchard, you can't just can't do that without working. Mm -hmm. And he did cut the ground cover down once a year, mm -hmm. and just let it drop on the surface. But his idea was that eventually nature can take over all the things that we're doing and working so hard at doing. Um, for example, uh, uh, fertilizing and the compost thing. Well, a lot of the reason that we have to fertilize so much is because we plow. And that burns out the organic matter. And then, of course, that's the history of Asian agriculture is the plowing and the compost. is mm -hmm. like, oh, that's... And, of course, that's the organic farming. that we The worldwide organic farming is all based on the Asian. So, so if you don't plow and you keep a permanent ground cover like that, well, you don't have to worry about fertilizing at all. If you have a diversity of plants, you don't have... So the, the, for um, insects, so there's all different kinds of insects. They create a natural balance. You don't have to do insect control. Right. You know, if you grow rice in a field that's not flooded, well, that's much easier, and the plant likes it a lot more, and it's a stronger plant, so you don't have to worry about disease as much, although he didn't mind some disease. Actually, he thought it was healthy to have patches of in the field that got diseased. And... So nature takes over all of these things that we had been doing until you get to the point where you're doing nothing.
you started working with him, living with him, and there were other people working there as well. Was this something that you had to adjust to, or did it make inherent sense to you? Well, the living, living in the, we lived in, in the orchard, mm-hmm. in these mud-walled huts. It was very rustic. Uh-huh. People say, oh, it's rustic, there's no electricity, and you have to bring the water from the well. And, and, and so I go, yeah, that's, that was great. There's food growing everywhere, there's yeah. plenty of water, there's everything you need right there. And we built the huts from the, what was there on the, in the orchard, and the food was there. The only thing... Fukuoka-san gave us about uh, $30 a month mm-hmm. to buy uh, things that were not practical to produce on a small scale, like soy sauce and oil, cooking oil. But, you know, we pickled, we made pickles and tofu and miso and all of, everything was right there. It Did was, you eat meat while you were there? I, I keep getting asked that. I can't remember ever eating meat, but... I may, it may be, but there were chickens running around yeah. and a couple of goats and, and rabbits. And so I assumed that, and Fukuoka-san was not a vegetarian, uh-huh. but red meat, boy, that is such a kind of, it's a traditionally a taboo in uh, a Buddhist country like yeah. Japan. Yeah. And, it, and animals that large are just not appropriate in Japan for, uh, partly because there's not enough area for grazing mm-hmm. and just the topography. Uh, so animals up to the size of about a goat mm-hmm. are perfectly appropriate in most, uh, you know, traditional Japan. Uh, fish, yeah, uh, we caught from the pond and occasionally somebody would bring it up, but it was mostly a vegetarian diet. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't, a, and with the diet, it, there wasn't any um, uh, dogma or any kind of program we didn't follow like macrobiotics for example yeah. which but macrobiotics is essentially a japanese country diet so the diet was quite similar mm-hmm. and that's good food it's great great food. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you like a grain-based yeah diet and yeah. um but all those vegetables yeah and, yeah yeah so grain-based diet um, is really the product of our modern culture Mm. and it's also traditional to japan and all over asia and that developed around um eight or ten thousand years ago there was a big change in uh, human culture and these grains are associated with that culture um although i've read recently that there have been some some recent studies that showed Humans earlier than originally anticipated also used grains and ate quite a, quite a lot of grains. They did, but, you know, it was mostly gathering wild seeds yeah. and then cultivating those wild seeds and yeah. scattering and encouraging them. The reason I'm bringing that up is to kind of shift this just a little bit okay. in that people have a hard time understanding natural farming for a number of reasons. And uh, one of them is that Westerners especially, that... He's, it's, Fukuoka-san explains this in an, a, with his Asian cultural references that are unfamiliar to Westerners. Things like he talks about no mind and you enter the fields with no mind and you, you know, and this is virtually incomprehensible, it means nothing to Westerners. And it meant nothing to me, frankly, when I first got there. Um, uh, but the bigger cultural difference, and once I got this, It was, oh, and I started to, you know, I've been trying to, explaining natural farming for almost 40 years now. And it's all, it's so difficult to, to, you know, it, you know, it, natural farming is a hands-off thing. It's giving up control. And we are so used to being in control. And this is the opposite. Again, it's all counterintuitive. You know, what can I not do? And but then when I realized that what Fukuoka-san was doing and the way he saw the world was virtually identical to the way indigenous people lived all over the world until that change occurred. And the change, I wouldn't say that agriculture changed the culture. I'd say there was something 
more basic that happened and agriculture came along at the same time and proved to be a useful way of spreading that new understanding, which was that people are superior to other species, that the world exists for us to do with as we please. And essentially people um, divorced themselves or separated themselves from natural law. Natural law doesn't apply to us. We're godlike. Right. We're godlike. We can have and we can populate to whatever extent, oh, and well, there'll be some techno fix. Whether whether that technology was the plow, or whether it's something much much more recent. Well, here's here now. We're gonna. I'm gradually heading towards science. Okay, I'll. I'm gradually I'll, heading I'll, towards I'll let science. You drive, Larry. Okay, <laughs> just for just for this one part. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so so the. Indigenous people, let's just take a shortcut and start with Homo sapiens. This is about 200,000 years people have been as we are today. And maybe consciousness, let's say 150,000 years. And during that time, people lived um, mostly in tribes right. and, and largely in the same place or migrated and then settled in one place. But for many, many hundreds of generations living in the same place, interacting with nature um, and uh, trying things and seeing nature's response. It was intuitive understanding. They learned, they saw the animals and the plants as their teachers to, in showing them how to, you know, behave and how to, um, you know, predict the weather. And, you know, they, so... And after all that time, this is intuitive understanding. After all that time, they made nature over in their place to be even more diverse and more abundant. And gradually they worked less and less. Once it was set up, they, they had a relationship. This is just, now I'm just giving my own idea, but it was if they, they, could see what the the lands in their place. They got to know it very well. What does the land want to become? What does it want to do here? And then, but then we also have needs and desires and blending our needs and desires with the destiny of nature in that place and became a wonderful relationship. So everybody benefited. So that was completely intuitive that that developed. Then we get to the place where we separate ourselves from nature by thinking that we're different and we can't talk to animals anymore or plants. We don't know that's a different world. We're in the same world, but we're not. Because now, because we have no more intuitive understanding, we can't rely on that. Then we have to rely on our intellect. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the main characteristics of our modern, worldwide modern culture is this is a world that only human beings know. We live in a world that only human beings know. It's all created by the intellect. And, and we have to, for the first time, learn how to live in this new world. Mm-hmm. Before, it was generation after generation, knowledge uh, skills, understanding, all of that passed down from generation to generation in an unbroken chain. This is true culture. Then we broke that chain. What do you think broke it? You know, that's, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of theories about that. I yeah. just don't know why, but it was, I, I, um, I, I don't think things have gone at all well for humanity since then. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, so we have to figure out how be, we knew how to live because we just lived just like the last generation, you mm-hmm. know, passed down, slightly changing and meandering, but it's an unbroken chain. Now we, we have to figure out for the first time how to live. We have to rely on our intellect. So, well, eventually... The idea, how do we know? Well, eventually that coalesced into science. We know by doing experiments, by using empiricism, by using only what we, accepting only what we 
can see and can be proven, and then Descartes, and then the, oh, the scientific, you know, the, the scientific method. And so this is a manifestation of our problem. Mm-hmm. And that's why Fukuoka-san, even though he was trained as a scientist, and he loved science when he was studying it, he thought science was just, he just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And um, I saw a film of when he traveled in India. Mm-hmm. He was traveling in India, and he knew a few words in English. I think he understood a lot more than he let on. <laughs> but, That's usually a sign of wisdom. <laughs> but he sat down in front of a group. It's just a side story. They took him. He's in India. And they took him over to the rice fields and they said, you know, we're having a problem with our rice. This is tropical. He's in the temperate. Mm-hmm. It is tropical in India, completely different kind of rice, different kind of climate. And they say, you know, our, our rice is off this year. What's, what's going on? So he looks, he looks and he, he pulls out a, you know, studies it for a minute. And he said, you see it at the wrong time. What? How did he know that? He was just so tuned in. Mm-hmm. He had the understanding that indigenous people did. Mm-hmm. He could speak to the plants, ask them. He could just ask them questions. He was awesome in that way. So then they come back to, um, they walked back from the fields to the place mm-hmm. they were meeting, and mm-hmm. he was going to give a little talk. And, and so he says in Japanese, okay, I'll, I'll answer anything you want to know. And then he says in English, but please, no science. <laughs> So you had come there with this, what was a scientific background, and this was counterintuitive to you as well, but it obviously made an impression as being genuine. Oh, well, for one thing that he was, oh, he was, again, awesome. You just, you see him walking through the orchard or in the fields, and it was he, it was like he wasn't there almost. Mm-hmm. He blended in so well. The understanding was just unmistakable. And that was, well, um, I just, when I met him, I just dropped everything. Mm-hmm. First, I saw the example of no organic, no tillage grain growing, which was something that nobody knew was possible. And uh, I knew that from when I studied soil science. And somebody asked the professor once, if plowing is so bad, why do we do it? And he said, well, uh, we just don't know any other way to grow enough food. And then I came and saw his rice field, 25 years, the example nobody knew about. Mm -hmm. And this amazing person, I just dropped what I was doing to move up, you know, into the orchard. But I had to go through the same process as every other um, modern person, person from this culture and uh, any other Westerner that I, I went to the same schools. You know, I was indoctrinated into the mm-hmm. values and, and the uh, assumptions of our modern world. And, you know, I'd even gone to study soil science. Um, so it was a process for me. It was like peeling away layers that at first I, I, I didn't understand, especially the lack of control and all of the no things. No means... Um, uh, no work, which is, you, you know, I've explained that, that it's right. not actual physical right. work, that we don't have to work as much. No mind, yeah. no this. And so there's all those no things that are so characteristic of Asian spirituality. that The emptiness produces The emptiness. Everything. That took me quite a while. Mm. And um, so, no, I didn't get it right at first. but But I could feel it. I could yeah. feel it. Yeah. It was way different at his farm. And now... But I finally realized what exactly was the difference when you walked through Fukuoka-san's farm, his orchard in particular, um, because he just tossed out seeds. You know, he tossed out these cl- seeds the and yeah. cased in clay. You don't want to call clay. them bombs. <laughs> no, well, um, and he put in trees and shrubs and ground cover plants and, and flowers and vegetables, and he just tossed them out. Uh, so he, he says that he didn't design the garden. Somebody asked him once, you know, so how did you figure out the design for this garden? 
He says, oh, that was easy. I just left it to nature to design the garden. All I did was throw out the seeds. And this is what nature chose. But do you have to, and, and I'm sure this sounds like, you know, the, the Western way of thinking of it. Does the soil have to be in a certain condition before you do that? Or it's just that whatever can, can live in that condition will start and then others follow? I mean, do you, what it's, if it's really compacted? Or well, like, then still, it was compacted in subsoil when he got there. And mm -hmm. he mainly used that method, but he started with plants that were specialized in rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And once the soil got better and better, then nature was able to, you know, uh, fulfill its destiny mm -hmm. more easily. So if, if he had, and that's one of the things that's different about natural farming for people that want to do practice natural farming today from indigenous people, what they were doing because was that they inherited pretty much pristine landscape. So, and, and nature was providing everything they needed. It was literally growing on trees. <laughs> so, and they understood that, they respected it, and they didn't, the number one ethic was, don't do anything that's gonna inhibit nature from continuing to produce the stuff that we need. One thing that's so interesting to me about this, and this kind of, you, you mentioned something similar to this a few minutes ago, this whole idea that is popular right now, that humans were doing fine during the Paleolithic and then agriculture started. And well, that's where all, that's where all hell broke loose, basically. But meanwhile, natural farming is agriculture. So it's, it bridges that duality. It's not like just hunter-gatherer or agriculture. You can do agriculture in a way that is as natural as hunting and gathering, it seems. Well, that is, uh, I think, what makes Fukuoka-san's ex example mm -hmm. so powerful, is that it's not just a theory. It's, it, he actually showed how this could work in the, in the, physical, in the real world, even in the modern, within the modern culture. So that's another reason why it took me a long time to realize that what he was doing was an indigenous style, you know, the tribal style of agriculture, because he was growing rice, mm -hmm. traditional. So he came from a traditional Japanese system. And he wanted to show the value of this way of thinking. This could be very, very useful to humanity, and we could turn the whole thing around if we stopped doing and did how about not doing this and not doing that? So in Japan, what he felt that he had to do was using this kind of farming that he needed to get yields that were comparable to the neighbors. Right. And in Japan, that means all the farms are judged by the yield of rice. Mm -hmm. So he grew rice and he was very concerned about, he didn't care about yields in general. And if he, if he were in a different world, he wouldn't have cared, but just because of this demonstration and trying to show the efficacy of this kind of farming, he was, he did eventually get, by the time I got there, after 25 years of his farming this way, his yields were uh, comparable and in some years greater mm -hmm. than his neighbors who were using all the benefits of science and the, the uh, tractors and the fossil fuels and using up the energy and burning out the organic matter and creating pollution. And, and on the other hand, he was using hand tools and the soil was getting improving every year and, and um, used no fossil fuels, didn't need a factory to create tractors and all of that. And yet his yields were comparable. So where is the value of modern technology? Right. If once you start seeing that way and feeling that way and connecting that way. What was yeah. it like for you when you came back to the States? It must have been crazy. Oh, it, it, it was quite different. I mean, the world was a different place. Yeah, and that wasn't, it, things weren't nearly as complicated But as then I lived now. in that, but I lived, I came back from, the, from Japan in 1976. Uh-huh. And I haven't been back since. Wow. Yeah, I, just because of various personal things. I'm thinking maybe I'll get time to go back next year. Mm -hmm. But 
I not only it, it's different, and I've been living in that world for many, many, many years. And I worked in plant nurseries, and I worked for the California State Department of Forestry, measuring soil erosion. Then I had um, my own landscaping business in the Bay Area for 25 years, and it really is like being uh, uh, in a, a strange, okay, James Baldwin, a stranger <laughs> in a strange land. Yeah. But that's okay. I mean, I'm. This is the world that we live in, and and it's my personal path. It's, it's what I've chosen, and and but it is strange. I'm not the kind of person that would say, "Oh, you should maybe live this way or that way." I just, I just put Fukuoka's out there, and you can do anything you want. But I see people just doing things that are crazy. It yeah. seems to me, but yeah. I mean, a lot of people feel that way, and I don't want to be you know, judgmental. But there there are ways that you can use this idea of natural farming in your own life so to make things have? easier. Well, um, what I eventually did was I used the same method that he used when he went back to his farm. You know, I wanted to create a natural, I wanted my life to be like a natural farm so that nature can, my, my self-nature, can be free to express itself. And I just had faith that that was going to be something wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking about what is it that's blocking that from happening, just like our, just like plowing and pruning and all the things that we do, thinking this is going to be better. So I started thinking, well, what are the, the cultural values that I've learned I started examining them and the ones that were, if they, if it was a universal truth, that's one thing, but if it came from the culture, then I tossed it. And there's so many things like that, you know, the control thing and that you, you need to, we need to progress and we need to make our lives great. Again. <laughs> You know, if you don't accomplish something, you know, this sense of accomplishment. And it's just because the society, it's this this drive for progress. We have no idea where we're going, but people do that in their personal lives. And and that creates a problem. And then you feel like you have some some, uh, standard that society sets on whether you're successful or not. And if you're not reaching that, then it you know, you've got issues. Yeah. But then if you are doing that, you've also got issues, different kind of issues. And so why not just toss that whole idea? Mm-hmm. Ah. And then after one after the other, and then I started to feel a lot lighter. Mm-hmm. And things got easier, just like the work got easier at the natural farm. As he stopped doing things, you know, I realized how much energy I was putting into maintaining all that stuff. So, anyway, um, I I'm certainly feel like natural farming has been a good thing in my personal life. Not just the farming aspect, it's just that I'm a happier person mm-hmm. because I came in touch with this idea. Do you grow a lot of stuff yourself? Well, I have in the past in mm-hmm. different places. Right now, I'm living in Ashland, Oregon, in Southern mm-hmm. Oregon. I'm living in the house where my parents had lived for 20 years. They lived here? Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. cool. <laughs> so, and the, and the, just the the house, it's a wooded backyard. And it's just, I, I can't grow much here. And I kind of have been traveling a lot during the summer. I could get a community garden plot. Right. But what I've chosen instead to do is to, you know, I have so many friends who are organic farmers around here in the valley. Mm-hmm. And I just go and visit them and stay for a few days or help them out when they need mm-hmm. help. So I, I get out there. Great. So let's talk about permaculture. Okay. Uh, since you you were talking about how popular it is in the Pacific Northwest, and it's certainly popular where I live in Vermont mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of other places, and seems to be growing. But as you said, that focuses on design. And natural farming doesn't. So, but meanwhile, you also have pot yeah. permaculture. Oh, hey, I took two 
I took the first PDC that Bill Mollison taught oh, in the really? United you States. You took it from Bill Mollison? Yeah. Oh, Actually, wow. I took two from Bill Mollison because he huh? also gave a, 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 another one in Olympia, Washington uh-huh. at the uh-huh. Evergreen State College. Oh, right. Yeah. And so I took that one too. I mean, it was the same material, but the first one was so much fun. I mean, Bill's the way he taught the course wasn't that much fun because he just stood up in front of a blackboard for six hours a day talking, and it was just so much overload. But the socially, it was fun uh-huh. to meet the, these people because it was just the beginning of the environmental and the back to the land movement, and here comes natural farming, Fukuoka, the One Star Revolution came out just at the time that Bill Mollison came, and it was such an exciting thing. And, we're, you know, we're just the everybody were coming together and so it was so much fun i didn't want to miss out on the one up in olympia mm-hmm. and then uh eventually i ended up uh teaching permaculture classes i i've taught the whole course mm-hmm. uh and some areas i'm a little I'm better than others but i have taught the course but usually i come in for a few days and talk about natural farming and soils in somebody else's course but anyway, maybe been involved in 50 or 60 mm-hmm. by now, but not so much anymore. And that is, well, for one thing, there's so many excellent permaculture teachers, especially in this area, but pretty much all over the world. Um, but, you know, the very few people had a chance to live and study with Fukuoka. And so I think that my energy is better spent uh, to, devoting myself to natural farming but also it was the contradiction of teaching you know people come and take a permaculture class and i'm teaching it but well um my my i'm mainly a disciple of fukuoka and then i also do permaculture on the side Mm -hmm. but they are so different they're nearly opposite and so after a while the contradiction got to be like i just didn't want to do it anymore Mm Uh, I think there's a lot of good things about permaculture. I mean, millions of trees have probably been planted in the world that would not have been without it. And just in the last, like, it's been 40 years or so. Mm -hmm. And um, permaculture is bringing back so many good techniques that would have been forgotten otherwise. Farming techniques, uh, uh, appropriate technology, seed collecting, preserving food, all of these things are coming back. And and uh, and also, I think most importantly, it acts as a, as a portal or a entryway for people who, um, they, let's say young people, especially who want to do good in the world and do something with their life and they just don't know where to start. Yes. It's ideal. And also for people in the middle age, Mm-hmm. who feel like, shoot, I, I, my life has been meaningless so far. and But I want to also, it's about do something meaningful and, and constructive. Anyway, the, the thing, the reason that I say that they're almost opposite, yeah. and now that we've talked about the indigenous and the modern, mm-hmm. is that Fukuoka's clearly more related to the tribal understanding or way of seeing the world and the way of interacting. And permaculture is a product of the modern culture, even though there's some great things about it. And, and the, instead of, you know, on the one hand, they talk about how everything is interrelated and they're trying to build connections, as many connections between things, but they do that by, you know, there's that famous chicken, you know, the chicken, they analyze each element and they go, what are the needs of this element? Oh, okay. And what can it provide to others? And they right. always use a chicken, you know, as a, that <laughs> oh, example. Oh, feathers, manure. <laughs> That's right. Right. Okay. Eggs. Well, this is, so yeah. they say that it's all interrelated, and yet they analyze the parts right. by taking it apart. Which doing is just, reductionist. It's yeah. just what science does. It tries to isolate variables. It yeah. takes an, a whole, breaks it into parts, and then tries to put it back together yeah. again. And the way they put it back together is with a design. Now, the design, it's, well, it's famously, permaculture says we're, we're patterning it after nature. Right. And they go out and observe nature, and they study it and take a lot of notes, and then they come back and they read up, and, and you know, on the climate and where the sun is and, right. and the, where the water situation, they Prevailing check the soil winds. pipes and all of this. They get all of this information, and uh, 
uh, Holmgren, what's his first name? Dave? Dave, yeah. Uh, Holmgren even said permaculture is a, a uh, information-rich study. And Bill Mollison is talking about how this is a scientific thing. Only mm-hmm. empirical is allowed. And, and so then they get all this information together and then create a design. If the design is coming from the human intellect, it's how do we put these together? Well, let's go back to Fukuoka's insight. If you take that approach, it's not going to end well. Anyway, now I'm being harder on permaculture than I intended to be. That's okay. But but I'm just pointing out that they are they come from they look a lot alike. Yeah. Fuku, one of the reasons that that Fukuoka sensei be, came to the attention of permaculture is because his orchard is a perfect example of what the permaculture one of their signature you know, uh, designs is the food forest. Right. And there was perfect. And, and it was already in existence when permaculture was created. So they could say, look, here's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. So it seems like they're, they have common ground, but how they came to it was completely opposite. Mm-hmm. One was, it was designed that way. And the other was nature did the design instead mm-hmm. of the humans. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe that doesn't matter. But I think it really matters. You know, when you talk about, for example, deconstructing the chicken, yeah, I wonder if some of that is almost a compensation for the way modern humans are because the average human doesn't know that chicken feathers, the average Western modern human, that chicken feathers have some can be used for some productive purpose or or this can be used or that can be used. It's almost like you have to break away the parts in order to put it back together again it's for because people it's, to understand it. It's the way we think. I know. And another reason I think, you know, permaculture is just all over the world and it's very there's permaculture everywhere. Right. And I think part of it is that it's from the way it's taught with a usually, you know, the PDC and mm-hmm. the, the 72 hour basic mm-hmm. course. And it's generally a teacher standing up in front of a classroom. Although there's also uh, visits of other sites and work out in the fields, but it's a very familiar mm-hmm. setting. Fukuoka-san didn't do any of that. And he, he didn't have, he, he, it was just go, just go out and farm. Mm-hmm. He did talk about his philosophy, but it was in a much more informal setting. And it was now and then, and it was just natural farming. The way you learn it is just to do it, just to go and, you know, it just, um, there's no structure to natural farming, to the way he taught. Um, it was direct, straight to nature. And that was one of the brilliant things, I thought, was there's, there's a lot of different programs that where you go through, follow the steps, and eventually you get to the end where you don't need the structure anymore. Natural farming doesn't even bother with that. It's straight, it's just farming. So say I'm in Vermont, I'm on this land, we're trying to, it had cows on it, I don't know, all different, they did all kinds of stuff. Um, A lot of forests. So if I were going to take, or anyone, take a natural farming approach, and I realize you're not looking at the land or anything, but you know, it's hill and uh, some of it's flat. Is it observation? Is it just throwing seeds and trial and error and see what comes up? Or what would be kind of the entryway to doing that? Um, if, you, if you read Fukuoka-san's books, mm-hmm. You'll see that there's an awful lot of philosophy and a lot of talking about the way to see the world. And then there's also the techniques, mm-hmm. which is largely what he did at his farm. But of course, natural farming can be practiced anywhere. We know that because indigenous people lived everywhere. and they, But they, it looks completely different in different places. So there's no way you can do a how to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I just got an email from somebody who was in um, Costa Rica and he said, well, what we read in Fukuoka-san's books is all temperate. So can you give me a how, how, how to apply that to the tropics, how to do it? Well, you're going to have to figure that out yourself. Um, so I would, 
I would concentrate on the philosophy and the way of seeing the world because you're going to have to practice now to be successful. You are going to have to um, give up control. You're going to have to learn to speak to the land where you are and be humble and ask the land what it wants to become. So that's how I would start. Mm-hmm. And this is not an observation thing. And that's another kind of difference. You know, permaculture goes out and observes. Well, that means that there's an observer and the thing that's being observed. So it just presupposes and accepts our separation from nature right from the very beginning. So you got to get deeper and it's not that hard to do, but you, you just have to sort of, well, it is actually, it's tricky because you have to give up the things that you've been relying on your entire life, thinking that they're necessary to get along in the world. Like, um, I, like, how is nature going to know what to do if I'm not directing it? So that has to give up that. Right. And then, so if you approach it, it's the approach that I would say, without that, it doesn't, it's really hard to practice natural farming without sort of becoming the land mm-hmm. and eventually asking the land how to do this, mm-hmm. not studying from books and bringing an extension agent out. Um, it's learning how to listen again to end. You know, this is one great quote in uh, The Natural Way of Farming, where Fukuoka-san talks about the way, what observation means to him. He says, he doesn't, uh, I wish I had it right with me, but I'll paraphrase. He says, for the most part, you don't need analytical studies at all. You just look at the plant and you know everything you need to know. Um, but if, if uh, that's not enough, then you ask the plant, mm. you know, what is it you need? What are you, what's going on? And what you do is you become the plant. And by becoming the plant, then you're back in the world. Mm-hmm. You enter back into the actual world instead of the world of the intellect. And, um, and then he has this cute thing about it in Japanese that's called observing without observing or knowing without knowing. And he gets into this Asian thing. What's that? I think Weed so. Weed <laughs> <laughs> what perfect timing. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the but anyway, so it's getting back into the world. It's not only um, so to know what to do yeah. in interacting with the landscape. You really need to get the understanding and, and it's and it's um, the, the, it's then eventually it comes down to the ego. Yeah, eventually it does. And this is difficult for Westerners, too. Well, it's difficult for modern Asian people. You know, it's not just right. Eastern Western thing anymore. No, no. Um, so you got to be humble and and approach the world with gratitude, because that's what you're getting. People don't think that they're growing the crops, but only nature can actually right. grow the crop. And event and if, if you just let it, it'll, it'll become abundant. Um, so I don't know if I've answered your question. Most people are, when they ask a question similar to that, so yeah. what do I do when I go out to the yeah. land? Yeah. What they're looking for is what kind of seeds do I do? And, I, and this, if you get this to this place where yeah. you sort of become the land or you're speaking or you're, the land becomes part of your family, yeah. you know, when you yeah. get to that place, yeah. you will intuitively know what to do. You'll know. That's where that quote, you know, the most quoted line from the one star revolution is that um natural farming is not just about growing food it's about the cultivation and perfection of human beings yeah about natural people natural people yeah that's the goal for having me to his house and for a great conversation and thank you for listening if you're interested in larry's book one straw revolutionary the philosophy and work of masanobu fukuoka 
or in Fukuoka's books themselves. Go to the show notes and we'll have some links there for you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Big Chew podcast. Bye for now. Bye.